Hello everybody, I'm John Atak and this is Casey at the Colt Vault. And, Hi um, everybody. And here we are. And um, we last met in, in London at the CBS Reality Crime Con where um, we entertained a room full of people together. That's right. That's right. And it went really well and everybody had great things to say. And now I'm being labelled the resident cult expert of CrimeCon. Um, wow. So I don't know how that's happened, but I think that that's partially thanks to you, John. So thank you very much. <laughs> Quite well, that's absolutely fine. You know, um, we'll see how we go with that. So, uh, yes, you um, you have a picture of a certain man that, that, that is used alongside the symbol of the cult vault. That's right. And, um, it looks to me like it could be Charles Manson. It is. I, I got asked whether it was Jesus Christ and whether it was Charles Manson. And somebody asked if it was actually me before listening to the show and thinking that I was a man. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that changed after they listened to the show. Who knows? But yes, it is. It's Charles Manson. Well, I mean, curiously, Charles Manson at various times did claim to be Jesus Christ. So, you know, there is some synchrony there, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe he was. <laughs> one hopes not. Many people have claimed have claimed the same thing, and maybe one of them was telling the truth. But I'm not convinced at this point. No, well, Karen De La Carrier told me that that she was aware of at least 200 people who had claimed in a past life to be oh. Jesus when she was running things for Scientology in uh, Clearwater. So a couple of hundred of them out there. Oh my goodness! There's uh, a paper to be written there. There's like data to collect, I think, especially when you look at so many of the branches of new minor religions that kind of pop up all over the place and have many figureheads at the top that claim the same thing. Mm. Yeah, so it... I just wonder if it's all linked. Well, of course, it's all linked. I mean, and I feel like Scientology some of the times at the at the center of it, uh, which could be said for the Charles Manson situation as well. Yes. And and. That's what led me to it. Um, as, as you know, a, a month or so back, I, I did a show with Eric Hunley, and um, who's my chosen advocate of of the slightly right. Um, I've been looking for somebody to talk to that I don't actually agree with, but who's intelligent and is willing to have a conversation rather than picking up a megaphone and yelling obscenities. And Eric is the chosen one uh, in that regard. And he said after we talked that did I know that my late friend Jolly West had um, pretty much programmed the Manson family and my jaw dropped. Um, and so I went off and he'd interviewed a guy called Tom O'Neill who wrote a book called Chaos, uh, which I bought a few years ago, but I didn't read it because it didn't have Scientology in the index. And writing mm. about Charles Manson without mentioning Scientology is uh, outrageous. Yeah. And that led me down the rabbit hole. I'm now reading Jeff Gwynn's book. He mentions Scientology, but he doesn't have a clue what it is. And it's he thinks Dale Carnegie was the main influence on Charles right. Manson. Yes, yeah. And, and, and that is what I got from reading Coming Down Fast and the section that focused on uh, the Process Church as Manson's into Scientology. But once I listened to you break it all down especially chronologically I was like it just it doesn't make sense any other way um and uh, sometimes when there are conspiracy theories in play you need that that 
chronology laid out in front of you to be able to say, okay, um, yeah, there's nothing here. <laughs> yeah, we, we have, you have to be so careful because people will, I mean, the way O'Neill put it was that, that he said that Jolly West was his great white whale and he was therefore pursuing him possibly in the same obsessive way that Captain yeah. Ahab. He spent 20 years writing this book and he's spent the last two years writing one about Jolly West. Now, Jolly West was a, was a major player in the countercult field. Um, he first was a psychiatrist, uh, was uh, in the US Air Force and left the Air Force in 1954, was at university in Oklahoma there. Um, gained tenure as a professor at a very young age. I think he was 29. And it came from a poor background and had taken the GI Bill um, to qualify. And he was already, I think he first wrote about Hubbard while he was still in the Air Force in about 1952. I think he, he said something about him. And he was a, an important figure for the Cult Awareness Network before Scientology took it over, the American Family Foundation now called the International Cultic Studies Association. He would be there at the conferences talking. He was sued by Scientology and he won all of the suits. Um, and at a meeting of the American Psychiatric Association, he stood up and said, Scientology is a cult and uh, wow. Ron Hubbard's a quack and uh, I'm not going to be intimidated by them. So the thought that a man he was also a friend of Martin Luther King. He took part in the civil rights movement. And it, it's not the portrait of a psychopath. Now, I only met Jolly four times. We spent hours together each time. We enjoyed each other's company. He was one of the most intelligent human beings I've ever met. I mean, he was really oh. smart, you know? Yeah, that's saying something for you to say that, because I know many people uh, often say that about you when they talk about intelligent people they know. So for you to say that, he must have been a very impressive individual. Yeah, and and he, I mean, some somebody um, on Eric Connolly's channel said, you know, I was taken in be because he was attacking Scientology and I was um, in denial and... Um, um, he was charming and psychopaths are charming and it's like yes but they're also charming people who are charming too yeah, and yeah if one looks carefully to what robert Hare says about psychopaths and believe me i have looked carefully i've read both of his books and been backwards and forwards through the Hare psychopathy checklist revised as it's snappily titled and it's not that psychopaths are charming they are superficially charming and Jolly was absolutely consistently charming. And I went off and I, I've talked with a couple of people who, who knew him far better than I did. And uh, with Joe Zimhart, for example, whose, whose judgment I absolutely respect. Joe is a remarkable man. And again, one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. Remarkable man. Um, and he worked with Jolly off and on over the years. And it's sort of, no, this idea that he's, you know, it's being put forward by O'Neill that that he was actually the architect of MK Ultra, the CIA mind mm. control program, which had, I think, 149 projects and was the very definition of evil, as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, he's he's being labeled this way. So I it 
threw me into the Manson stuff. And what surprised me was that I, I wrote about Manson in Let's Sell These People, A Piece of Blue Sky. He's in there. And that was first published in 1990. And I point out that he had 150 hours of Scientology yeah. auditing. And um, this is glossed over in Jeff Gwynn's book. It, it, it's glossed over in, in, in the book you just mentioned, Coming Down Fast. That there's no explanation of what Scientology is and how this might have been relevant. As to the um, process church of the final judgment, when, um, I think I've got my dates right, he was studying Scientology in 1962 at McNeil Island Penitentiary. And I don't think the de Grimstons had moved to America yet by 62, had they? So I'm not 100% sure on dates, but I know that the majority of the earlier stuff takes place here as opposed to in the States. So that would make more sense if you're looking at Manson from sort of 67 to 68 before the horrific crimes take place. I mean, oh, that we know of, because of course, nothing good came before those dates either. Hmm. And, and Manson had, you know, a, a life of criminality. He, he, yeah. he certainly was a psychopath and not very charming as far as I can tell. Um, but this rush to sort of evaluate his personality and see him as something and, and say, well, you know, I think all of the elements have to be taken into account. Yeah. The first, the first is that he was an unwanted child. His mother yeah. was 16 when she had him. She'd run away from a, um, a fairly strict, very strict religious household. Um, she wanted to go out dancing and drinking. She felt pregnant. Um, Manson's not actually a Manson. His father was not called Manson. Um, and he disappeared. So, and she was too young. And I, I don't think, you know, I've heard nothing nasty about her, save, of course, that, of, you know, she went to prison for armed robbery. Um, and, and sold him once for a pint of beer. Well, and I've heard I've heard that one. I'm not totally convinced by that one, but apparently the the arms in the armed romp robbery was a Coke bottle, and a guy was hit over the head with a Coke bottle. And yeah, and, yeah, at a, at a petrol station, at a a, a service or, station, as they a call service it. station. Yeah, station, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, but she seems to have tried to look after him as best she could, um, which wasn't very, you know wasn't very well generally, you know, she then married an alcoholic and things just went, went downhill. So from the age of 12 um, to the age of what, 32, he was largely in institutions one yeah. way and another yeah. and, and has a, a dreadful background. You know, if, if, if we look at the idea of, you know, abuse creating somebody dangerous, then Manson would be a candidate, but yeah. he, he's a pimp he's a car thief um he was a small man he was uh, five foot five yeah. and um scrawny and so i imagine that that his time in institutions was not much fun uh he talks about having been beaten up a great deal when he was in the catholic reform school uh which sound you know again something that wouldn't necessarily turn you into a good human being 
Yeah, yeah. I have some of the abuses that are spoken about by other people that attended those same boy institutions sounds horrific as well. The abuse from staff and and people that worked there. Hmm. Um, so it's almost like um, it's like a protection, like a life saving mechanism to fall into certain behaviors. Um, that's not to say that he, you know, there isn't accountability, but there are lots of different elements to consider. Mm. Um, and that's why there's another conversation going on about whether um, Liz Leslie Van Houten should be given um, parole, which she has been granted now. Um, and, you know, so there's an interesting dialogue going on online about whether that's the right thing or not. Um, Had, has she actually been released? Because I the saw something today. Yeah, I saw something, uh, a news article today um, on uh, CBS that talked about how the um, judge is stepping down from um, withholding the uh, pending parole hearing. So that's the same person that denied the request for parole or, or reversed the yeah, the, the uh, admitted parole. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it looks like it's going to happen in the next in the next few weeks. I'm, I'm sure there'll be an announcement. So it's been some years, and and that's pretty big news in terms of mm. coercive control, at least. I mean, I know you love that phrase. <laughs> well, yeah, be, be, because it 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 kind of overegs the the pudding. Coercion need not be involved in coercive control. So because coercion means force, intimidation or threat. And yeah. our whole point has been that you can bend somebody to your will without using force, intimidation or threat. Indeed, the whole idea of the Coercive Control Act was in this country in 2015 was to say that there doesn't have to be physical violence involved. So that's the force element of coercion, yeah. but intimidation and threat aren't necessary either. And the Manson case, I mean, you, you've got Manson, Patty Hearst and Jonestown. When I got involved in, in this way back in 1983, those were the three proofs, if you like, that mind control existed, that brainwashing was going on. I have a more nuanced view now than I did then. And with Manson, that is the question. The idea is that he brainwashed a group of young women and young men, all younger than him. Indeed, some of the the, the youngest of the girls that, that he that he picked up and took into the family was fourteen years old. Yeah. Um, and he took these people who were impressionable. He ruled and dominated them, and he then got them to commit these murders. Now, I get right up to the point of got them to commit these murders and I go hang on this is this is a bit more complicated let me say that my perspective is if you commit a crime then you are responsible for what you did I do not believe in any zombie state where somebody is completely under the control of another person there are then mitigating circumstances if for example you committed the crime because members of your own family were being threatened or yeah, tortured. Yeah, that's what comes to my mind when I think about kind of, you know, what 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 lengths or what, what reasons would some people have for following through with things? And I was thinking, you know, if somebody had my kids, I don't know what I would hmm. do in that situation. 
Well, I'd, I'd kill the person who'd got my kids, even though I'm totally against capital punishment, of course. Um, but the, this question of how the where the responsibility lies becomes so difficult, and so the assessment has to be very careful. Um, the murders were horrific. Yeah. The uh, the Tate Sharon Tate murders at Roman Polanski's house. Um, that they're, they're just bleh horrifying the details of them manson wasn't there when they happened manson wasn't there when any of the murders happened no no but well, briefly briefly with gary hinman and i feel like that is poignant because the whole hanging around and trying to stitch up the face with two like teeth in floss and things um and keeping him in the house as he deteriorated into a state of infection and um and and whatever else um i don't know if that kind of well and i mean there's and, and chris shelton told me there's no point thinking or talking in hypotheticals but i wonder how different the situation would have been if manson didn't show up with some type of samurai sword yeah and he begins that you know what happens there he leaves before hinman's death yeah. and you know manson in the, the book that he did with Noel Lemons, um, which and you know Jeff Gwynn says says of this book that that he believes that Noel Lemons accurately reported what he was told, and I'd go along with that, which makes it a valuable valuable document, because you know in dealing with Ron Hubbard in his past, I I don't just dismiss his past because he was a liar, I look at everything he said and see how it fits together. And often it will point towards the truth. Uh, liars do that. So, for example, when Hubbard claimed to have been crippled and blinded, he said that he had physical injuries to hip and back. Now, somebody who's making a story up might put that word physical. The rest of us think injuries to hip or back. You know, that's that's you know, fair enough. So he's he's sort of saying you might think I'm lying. They were physical injuries. They weren't pretend yeah. injuries you know? and they were you know the injury to his back was that he'd fallen down a ship's ladder you know so there was some slight grain of truth but it wasn't really a combat wound exactly falling down a ladder you know so maybe just to his ego <laughs> yeah which was massive let's face it and with manson piecing everything together from what he says he basically says that he deserved to be in prison for the rest of his life, for the conspiracy to commit murder, which he he accepts, but he does not accept that he directed these killings. The idea is that once Bobby Beausoleil had been picked up, um, quite rightly, for the Hinman yeah. killing, that somebody came up with a scheme, and Manson says it wasn't him, to do a copycat. And because blood had been used to smear words on the wall, they yeah. thought we'll do the same thing. So that's a part of it. The other part part of it is, you know, to what extent did Manson control them? And to what extent 50 and more years later, should people still be in prison for these offences? And, and I think it's an awfully long time, you know, and we should be looking at whether these people have in fact um rehabilitated themselves 
um, or been re rehabilitated, and whether they are, of course, any danger to society, which seems pretty unlikely now. Um, yeah. I mean, well, Manson's dead now. He died in 2017, 16, 17. No. So that must play a part in, you know, if you're worried about the person that was supposedly controlling everything and setting the narrative and the actions and the outcome has no more say you know if she was to get released and they're worried that there's still an element of of obedience or um or connection to him that that wouldn't exist anymore but um i mean 50 years of no contact with a person probably probably severs that that tie uh, the stark reality of being incarceration uh, or incarcerated i imagine does that pretty swiftly Yes, absolutely. And and Manson, of course, to his own, what, what seems to be his own amazement, held sway over thousands of people outside of prison be, because people were volunteering to help him and to do things. And, um, you know, so as to how much influence he might have had. But so if he if he was and he certainly was the leader of, of this group of people, there's no doubt about that. Um, there seems to have been a massive influence over the, the young women involved. Um, again, O'Neill didn't have, and I don't think Jeff Gwynn had access to Manson, the lost tapes, um, which is a vital document. A week after Manson was arrested, a movie maker went to Spahn's ranch where, where the remainder of the family were, or most of them, and and filmed. I think there are five girls involved. Um, and you see that the kind of state they're in, and it's very persuasive to, to say, you know, that they are, you know, under some kind of influence because they're sat there with assault weapons. They've all had buzz cuts and they're. Of course, yes, because they were training for this and doing sort of round the clock. Um watches and with, yeah. with weapons and yeah yeah I, i'd completely forgot all about that part and they're waiting for helter skelter they're waiting for this moment when the black population will rise up which was something you know i think uh in 1967 there were i've recently read 130 race riots in the united states in that year so race riots were as common as school shootings are now yeah, um, it's it's you know if you if you needed something to motivate people, you know it's 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 easier to use that thing than than the actual end of the world apocalypse floor opening up underneath you. Mm. <laughs> it's like actually, yeah, school shooting. Actually, going going on, and of course Manson had been brought up racist, which is sadly still happening in some parts of the world, but. The institutions he was in, I mean, one of the telling things is, of course, whenever he was sent to prison, the prison would be segregated. You know, the black prisoners were not considered good enough to spend time with the white prisoners. Uh, you know, we're, we're talking, he, he comes out of prison just as, um, well, he's in, the, in there as the modern civil rights movement. He's finally making some ground. Um, but he lives in an incredibly divided society. And 
Jeff Gwynn says that he didn't actually say anything racist in front of, of the girls because they didn't like it, which is a weird thought. You know, so he was completely in control of their minds, but he didn't say anything that would upset them. Yeah, that is, that's, that's strange to think about when you consider, you know, horrifically raping 14-year-olds and dragging people out into Death Valley because he envisioned <laughs> a wolf and then thought he was a wolf for a little while. And I don't know. And then and then keeping people up round the clock, hmm. but not saying things that might upset them. It, it's strange. What what if somebody would have turned around and said, I don't like the Beatles? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he, maybe that's a step too far. Well, well he actually in, in, in um, without conscience says that he wasn't that keen on the Beatles. And that was, he's one of, you know, he says he liked Perry Como and Frank Sinatra and uh, probably did it his way as well. Um, yeah. Didn't Frank Sinatra's name end up at the top of the hit list that they found at Spahn's Ranch yeah. after they arrested him? That's my so idol. Un, so unfair. He's at the top of my hit list. Yeah. So unfair. <laughs> you know, of course, uh, Nancy Sinatra's "These Boots Were Made for Walking" was played at Waco repeatedly in a heavy volume. Um, oh gosh. somebody challenged me a couple of years ago and said, you know, Jolly West was was working with the CIA and Waco. That's Jolly West. He was involved with that. And I said, actually, I was with him that week in Los Angeles, um, or more than a week the Waco siege but I was during the Waco siege I saw Jolly and yes indeed he was calling the FBI up and saying what you're doing is entirely stupid so yeah he tried to be involved in Waco um, but so yeah the Manson that there the, the difficulty that I particularly have is that once we've determined that we hate somebody then we will attribute to them all of the characteristics of a hateful person. And so Jeff Gwynn, whose book I think is, is I think O'Neill's book is very well researched and very well written. Jeff Gwynn's book is, is well researched and well written, but he attributes characteristics to Manson. You know, so he says, for example, that Manson never did anything for anybody. He only ever did things for himself. And you're going, well, Yes, that that's a, an attribution. That's not. And there are many places where he, you know, I'm looking to the back of the book for the, the reference to tell me he said Manson felt this or said this or did this. And there's no reference. This is, you know, I'm not being told where this information comes from. Right. And it isn't quite as cut and dried as, you know, the FBI would have us believe with regard to, say, serial killers that their behaviors are nuanced. Jeffrey Dahmer is a really strong example of that, that, that he appears to have felt remorse and psychopaths don't. So that's not possible. So let's write it out. So I, I think often people kind of, they, they want to say this is the recipe without having actually properly deconstructed the meal. They don't know how it was made. Right, uh, right. With Manson, the, the elephant in the particular room is that None of the biographies that I've looked at, and with the one you provided to me earlier today, that's that's three that I've looked at outside of his own autobiography, and you know so many articles over the years, they don't tell us what Scientology is and why Scientology might have had some part in this. 
So my understanding is that by the time he got to McNeil Island in 1962, Manson's spent most of his life in institutions. He's the little guy. He's picked on. He's beaten. He's attacked. He says that he was homosexually raped at the Catholic boys' school. Sadly, we know that that would not be at all unusual. You know, the Australian Royal Commission found that 500 Catholic priests in Australia had abused 8,000 victims. We've recently, in Portugal, I think in January, 4,000 victims. So th this has is, is been, you know, been just a most terrible plague. And Manson was subjected to this. But he's, how is he going to survive? So he, he does much of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People course. He drops out of the course. Um, but there's, a, there's, something, there's something odd going on. He says that he only learned to read and write in 1962. Jeff Gwynn points out that he, his reading and writing had been graded before in the system and that he right. could read and write. But he could only read and write to a pretty basic level. He's, um, what, 27 by the time he's in McNeil and learning to read and write, supposedly. And he then send, suddenly says that he starts reading voraciously. He has people send Scientology books to him. He meets Lania Raymer. Lania Raymer is according to Scientology's internal documents, which none of these authors seem to have dug out, which surprises me because they've been in my possession since 1983. Because you know, they came out when the FBI raided Scientology, the largest raid in their history, in July 1977, they brought out this material about Manson. And this material was what's called red box material in Scientology. In the Guardian's office, the harassment division of Scientology. Any material that must not be taken by the police was put into a red box and each office had a red box. And if the alarm went, you destroyed the red box, they got the red boxes. And in one of the red boxes was material on Manson. This includes a so-called compliance report written to Ron Hubbard's wife, Mary Sue Hubbard, who was the controller of the Guardian's office, with an amazing amount of detail about Charles Manson, basically saying that material is, is blowing up about the, the process and its relationship to Scientology and about Manson, and they want to keep it out of the news. What's particularly, to me, startling about this detailed report is that it goes to Mary Sue Hubbard a month before the Manson trial begins. Oh. They're on it straight away. And in there, we find that Lania Raymer is in prison because he was robbing a bank to have enough money to pay for his Scientology. Uh, we're told that he's a, a class one auditor, level one. At that time, that would have meant that he had done the Hubbard Qualified Scientologist course, um, the first major course in Scientology. He would have done the Hubbard standard dianetics course possibly though things are a bit up in the air as to from one year to the next as to what scientology you know there was no bridge of scientology in 1962 that's still being put together but he would probably very likely have also been a word clearer and he will certainly have done 
the class zero course. So you have a guy who's done a certain amount of Scientology, and then in the, the pack, we have an affidavit written by Lania Rama saying, I was never a minister of Scientology. I, I had no, you know, I did this on my own. It's nothing to do with them. So again, they're really keen to not be identified. So right. when three weeks ago, Steve Hassan in his column in Psychology Today mentioned that Charles Manson had had 150 hours of auditing, Scientology was straight on it. And they produced a, a 1971 newspaper article from The Guardian here in Manchester saying that the libel that they'd been involved with Manson had been withdrawn. This is a little disingenuous as they know that their internal documents show otherwise. And you know, given that they, they sued me over my book, which mentions this, but didn't sue me for saying that, suggests that they know that they, they have no ground to stand on, but they don't want to be, you know, they don't want to be positioned against Charles Manson. And it's probably fair to say, if you say, well, you know, Charles Manson was an Anglican or Charles Manson was a Baptist or Charles Manson was a Muslim or what have you, so what, frankly? Yeah. But Scientology is a little bit prickly. And then we go, well, in this report, it says he spent 14 months at least doing Scientology. He had 150 hours of auditing. If you think about that in, and, and we shouldn't, but if you think about it in terms of therapy hours, that that would be the equivalent of having um, three sessions a week for a year. Wow, that's a lot. That is a significant amount of time studying L. Ron Hubbard's work because well, th that's what he did. He stu he studied. It wasn't just um, taking part in the in in the courses. It was understanding how he could use that outside of the the. <laughs> Well, within the prison as well, but but outside of the prison, um, much with the, you know, how to make friends and, and influence people um, or how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> yeah, I, I said something polite about Dale Carnegie in a, a talk the other week and having gone and looked at him again, I, I want to withdraw that. He was a manipulative bastard and that's all there is to it. Um, and surely Manson did learn something from there but to then, you know, how to win friends and influence people is, is about becoming a salesman, salesperson. Um, and it's not, it's not really pleasant because it is about conning people into liking you. And that's really fundamentally psychopathic. But there's that. It's a kind of set of sales techniques. Scientology, by its own admission, is a way of teaching you how to control other people. Yeah. And it's put to you as if that was a good thing, you know, that, that you don't have enough control over the people around you. This isn't just selling people on something. It's not just getting them new double glazing or a, a set of pots and pans or a, a hoover. This is how to control somebody else's mind. Right. It's, it's like a, a double bind in that way. If you, I can imagine, Manson strolling up and down the beach, finding young, vulnerable women who are in emotional states and selling them something. And once they're kind of interested, then the other 
pieces come into play that result in totalistic control of people's lives. Mm. Uh, except let's add one other thing. Three other members of the family were also Scientologists. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so who's controlling who and how? Yeah. The, the thing is that we are talking about 150 hours of so-called auditing plus whatever reading time he did, plus whatever study time he did. Now, from a Scientologist point of view, it's actually in the, the memorandum to Mary Sue Hubbard that he'd done training routine zero. Now, that would be considered separate from any auditing. You are meant to do it for some hours and you do it again and again and again. The, the first, my first nine months involved with Scientology, I did training routine zero every day. Oh my gosh. Because it replaced Zazen meditation, which is what I'd been doing every day before that. Right. And I could never really see what the particular difference was, why this was thought to be anything different. <laughs> Specifically, there's a, there's a meditation called a Tratak meditation, which Hindus do where you sit and look at another person. So um, I was talking with the head of investigation um, in Scientology back in 1993, and I said to her, so this TR0, the, the fact that the Hindus in some sects use it, that would be considered squirrel, you know, and, and it would, you'd, have to, you'd have to abolish it. You'd have to stop them from doing it. And she said, absolutely. So um, anything that Hubbard stole from anywhere is ours now, and people must stop doing it immediately. But it's got this different name, so you'll never, you'll never link it back to, a, to another place or another person's ideas. <laughs> just unbelievable when, when you, you trace down Hubbard's ideas um, that, that, you know, I went looking for, you know, correspondences between his ideas and other people's. And there was a great guy called Jeff Jacobson who'd, who'd written a, a paper on Hubbard's plagiarism. And he'd shown techniques that belonged elsewhere and ideas that belonged elsewhere that Hubbard had used. I then went a step further, which was to connect Hubbard to the source of those things. Wow. So to show that it was genuine plagiarism, it wasn't just that he'd come up with the same idea. Um, in fact, the major source, um, and, and there's a scholar called David Barrett, um, a PhD, who's, who's written several books, and in one of them he says that although Hubbard was involved with Crowleyite magic, there's no evidence of Crowley's teachings in Scientology. I found 60 of Crowley's ideas in Scientology, so I disagree with that point of view, that it's not practiced as a form of ritual sex magic. Yes, that's true. That's absolutely true. But things like the trauma of birth, Crowley talks about. The Indeed, the first of the training routines, uh, called Beginner's Training Routine Zero now, comes directly from Crowley, where you sit with your eyes closed opposite to a person. Um, Steve Hassan and I, with Chris Shelton and, and Christian Chichurko, analyzed these techniques, and there's a video on, on my channel showing what the training routines do what's of interest particular interest to me is we don't we know that manson did what are called objective processes um control communication havingness processes which are a interesting little set of techniques that that um include mimicry you know so you'll have somebody follow your hand for example these are hypnotic inductions they're ways of getting somebody um, 
it's called pacing by some hypnotists. It's a way of getting somebody to react in sync with you. Right. So, so the, it's done with breathing. And, and let me really underline that I have never trained in hypnosis. I have never knowingly practiced hypnosis because I realized when I came out of Scientology, I'd been trained in hypnosis for nine years and I really didn't want to do it. So while my friends went off and did neuro-linguistic programming and things like that, I just watched them and what happened to them and read, you know, what Bandler and Grinder or Milton Erickson had to say and sought to develop an understanding of, of what was actually going on and how to undo it rather than doing more of it to people, which yeah. is very much what Scientology is. But so you have these procedures and that would, would have included opening procedure by duplication, which is where you have a little card table at either end, in this case of your cell, at the other end of a room. And on one table, you have a book and on the other, you have a bottle. And the person is marched up and down between them and, and you, you're commanded. The, the Hubbard uses the word command. You don't question people. You order them to do things, which made me a little bit suspicious at the time and has made me a lot more suspicious since. You have auditing commands. And so you say, look at that. You know, standing at one side, you say, look at that, that bottle. Walk over to that bottle. Pick the bottle up. What's its temperature? What's its weight? Each time acknowledging that the person has done this, you say, thank you, or fine, good, all right, what have you, to complete the cycle of communication. And you do this for as long as it takes. I, you know, very early on learned how to do this and thankfully didn't have to do it a lot of times, but I did do five two-hour sessions with this guy. Oh, gosh. And it is mind-numbing, you know. Oh. The, you dissociate, you, you, you don't know what's going on anymore. And the idea is that you will be exterior from your body. And of course, by the time you're done with it, you, you're kind of nowhere near your body, you know, you're all over the place, you don't know what's going on. Um, sadly, I, you know, in all of these years now, nearly 50 years, I've yet to have a reliable report of anybody leaving their body and being able to perceive anything, you know. Um, in fact, very few people have even claimed that they could do it of the thousand or so that I've, I've talked to. But Manson will have done this and there will have been this idea, fundamental ideas of Scientology. One is being exterior to your body. Another is reincarnation, which we do know that Manson believed in because he talked about it um, and seemed to believe he was, in fact, Jesus. Um, yeah. Which, And I think he gave Jesus a pretty bad name by claiming that personally, you know. It's just just not nice. Um, but then you have this this notion of control. In Scientology, it's called infinite control. And Hubbard had a real um, penchant for taking the number eight and representing infinity, which, of course, the infinity symbol does look like an eight. It's not actually an eight. But he there, there are books, 8.8008, 8.80, 0.8. He was very keen on, on the number eight. And that could be something to do with Alistair Crowley too, but uh, who was also quite keen on the number. But we have this idea of 8C, which runs throughout Scientology from very early on. This is infinite control. And this is where you are able to intend another person to do something and get them to do it. We don't know, but it's extraordinarily likely that Charles Manson did what are called the upper indoctrination training routines. So, they're numbered from six 
to nine. And are they called upper indoctrination? They are, are called they, the, the, the upper, words... <laughs> upper indoctrination training routines in the Hubbard Communications Office bulletin that lays them out. Yeah. He also talked talked of auditing, which of course is something you do to to your books to see if your receipts balance. He called it processing, which is a word that always bothered me um, throughout my membership. So in the upper indoctrination training routines, you take physical control of somebody. You actually do things that are in this generation considered um, excessive. You, you physically grab somebody by the shoulders and move them across the room. And you are learning, according to Hubbard, to teach the person that their reactive mind can be controlled because you on the outside are controlling it and stopping it from doing all the horrid things that reactive minds do to us. And that will show you that you will be able to control it. Elsewhere, he talks a great deal about control. And he says, for example, there's no such thing as bad control. Control is always good. Yeah. Which was an idea I had problems with, I must say. <laughs> um, so these drills teach you how to push your way through, how to get somebody to do what you want to do. Now, there's a particular thing that Manson is, is known for, and that, that's the thousand mile stare. And I haven't seen anybody in writing about Manson point out, this is what training routine zero is. You are trained to make locked on eye contact with everybody at all times. And it's, it's one of the ways you can tell if you have a Scientology agent in your life. Oh, yeah. I'd find that so like di disconcerting, I think. I mean, eye contact, but not like, oh, just somebody that just stares and doesn't break eye contact. Well, and in Scientology, being told that this puts people at their ease so you can counsel them. But in the police and the military, it's called the predatory stare. And yeah, it's taught as a way of... Like, I, that's, I think that's how it would make you feel. I mean, it's, it's interesting and makes sense that Scientology would pitch it that way. You know, this is a positive thing when actually it's it's probably more likely to show you who can be submissive pretty quickly, you know, like kind of head down, not making eye contact, avoiding like any type of, it just feels, I don't know, I think it would feel intimidating. So if somebody's going to do things to hide away from that intimidation, I think I would do that. Then I might be susceptible to some of the other things that could then be brought in um, to begin influencing. I mean, it's something that is seen that that um, cats do it. They'll sit and stare at something. You know, they'll get locked onto it. And we know that rabbits freeze in the headlights. Um, so there is a sort of relationship right. in nature that's going on here. It took me, you know, because I had nine years of of practicing this, and so in normal everyday conversation while I was smart enough to understand that Scientologies as a language was not going to be understood by non-Scientologists. So I kept a separate vocabulary. Of course, I was never a living member, so I, I was out in the world anyway. But 
I did I hadn't worked out that the locked on eye contact would be distressing to people, which is weird. Oh, I was 19 when I got involved. And, and so I had nine years of doing it. And when I left and decided that the only safe thing to do was reject everything, right. you know, there wasn't a way of looking at it through itself. I did try that. And so I had to reject everything and, and say, you know, I'll, I'll take back any bits that make sense later on. I'll, I'll take back. I haven't taken back anything. I found better sources for any decent ideas in Scientology. And most of the ideas are counterfeit. Um, when you push them hard, they don't work. Um, and, but it took me six months after I'd left to stop staring at people. Gosh. Even though I knew it was a bad thing to be doing. And the most incredible thing about it was that when it finally went, I realized that I noticed far more about people than I had done when I was staring at them. Now, there's a reason for that. It's called the Gansfeld effect. And that is that if you fixate perception in any way, then the brain starts to fill in information. You get feedback in the system. So if you stare at a white wall, you'll start to see colors drifting down the wall. If you stare at somebody's face, it will distort after a few minutes. If you stare at anything, um, the easiest way of checking it is in a dark room. In a completely dark room, if you sit in the middle of a dark room, within 10 minutes, you will hear things. Oh, that's yeah. creepy. I don't even want to try it. No, and it's, it, it's once you understand what it is, and then you go, oh no, mindfulness, meditations, all of these things that are being taught to people based on very little or no scientific evidence. Um, I mean, Miguel Farias, who, who wrote, co-wrote The Buddha Pill, and who's at um, Oxford University, and by now should have released the Oxford Handbook of Meditation, which would be like, you know, the Oxford Handbook of Hypnosis is the big book on hypnosis. So he is a scholar and he's a mindfulness practitioner and he admits to having become a mindfulness junkie, his word. And he, he says that having had his students check, I think it was 3000 studies of mindfulness, only 38 of them were viable studies. The rest oh, were all gosh. didn't fit the criteria for study. <laughs> one percent one percent was viable <laughs> yeah just over and and so he's sort of going his his words are there is no robust scientific evidence to support mindfulness well the national health service had already adopted it here for depression and anxiety uh, for which it will not be helpful you know um, because self-reflection is not what you need you need to be taken out of yourself oh, if you're feeling gosh. anxious or depressed um fairly simple but so we have manson learning this technique and we know three other members of the family because this is the first thing you learn in scientology this is the communication course this is the beginning so they will have been aware of this they, they will have been using this and if you want to command somebody's attention then these techniques are effective they're, they're meant to be effective and so if you then add certain things to them, um, isolation, a milieu, a group of people who all agree on something, sleep deprivation, drug abuse. We, we know that, that the family were, were using LSD. Uh, Gary Hinman was, 
there are two different accounts actually one says that he was um making synthetic mescaline and the other that he yeah. was making making methamphetamine and both may be true i don't know but these are drugs that that can affect people's concentration a little bit and their locus of control their sense of being control in fact they can seriously affect it o'neill goes to the point that it's lsd that's been used to brainwash these people and you're going well that's not what the cia's mk ultra says about lsd they say it's a great drug for confusing people but if you want to program somebody and indeed in in scientology the drug that was singled out by hubbard as something that scientologists must not use was lsd um he had two sources um people he'd told that he'd used lsd in fact one was somebody he'd who said he'd taken it with him um and he was a bit notorious in terms of his drug use uh, by his own confession you know he used amphetamines and barbiturates and he said he'd been addicted to barbiturates in, in a lecture so we know that hubbard was was using these drugs so he was knowledgeable about their effects lsd was forbidden and i'm pretty sure it's forbidden because it can cause a sh sudden shift of perception and you don't believe stuff anymore so if you're carefully trying to program somebody, this would be the last drug you would use. If you wanted to confuse them, if you wanted to control them in the short term, yeah. Um, but to get them to be um, kind of robot slaves, this would not be the drug you'd use. The drug you'd use for that would be Datura. And curiously, O'Neill doesn't mention Datura at all. And Jeff Gwynn doesn't mention Datura at all. Charles Manson mentions it. He misnames it. He says it's Belladonna. Uh, and he calls, he talks about something called Talache tea. Now, mm. weirdly, Jolly West was asked, Steve Hassan and I saw Jolly, I think in 91 in LA. And just out of the blue, Steve asked him, what do you think the Manson family were taking? And he said, straight away, Jimson weed. Now, Jolly was a leading expert on drugs. I think demotivation um, on cannabis, people who are basically using too much cannabis, um, I think he was the first person to identify it back in the 60s. Um, and he just straight away, Jimson weed. Now, Jimson weed is Datura. It's one of the various forms of Datura. And this drug is incredibly potent i was very lucky i remembered that around the same time that steve and i met jolly steve had introduced me to a friend of his who's an ethnobotanist and so i got out of steve and it's like you remember 30 years ago this friend of yours and he said yeah and can i have an email and this wonderful man and i'm not going to name him because because why should i you know given possibilities here this wonderful yeah, yeah. wonderful man within 24 hours had, had got a description of tolo ache the reason i couldn't find talache was because manson had misunderstood the word all that scientology and getting a misunderstood word tex watson who's went to prison for the the tape murders um and the labianca murders he talks about it too talache tea and Manson says he didn't take it, but he said he never, from the first time that Watson took it, he never saw him other than under the influence of this drug. Now, this is 
a special drug. It's called a deliriant. It's in a separate class to the hallucinogens. You, it doesn't just distort the environment around you, which is what LSD, psilocybin, mescaline will do. It puts you into a nightmare. And I, from what I hear from people who've taken ayahuasca or ibogaine, these two are deliriants. They put you into another world. A friend of mine years ago said that he took ayahuasca and angels talked to him. It's, would I like some? And it's like, no, I don't think I would. Thank you very much. It's lovely of you to ask, but um, I've yeah. talked enough angels, you know. I think um, I think I read I think I read part of Manson's journey. He sat down and said, well, he said he sat down with an Indian chief and tried ayahuasca, whether that's true or not, you know because cult leaders tend to say things that sound quite impressive to certain people, uh, but don't necessarily hold up. But Well, Carlos I, Castaneda, I read... prince among them all, you know, what a bullshit artist he was. You know? there, there's so many things that you read that Manson claims, hmm. po like post-final -im imprisonment, that I just think um, don't, don't, don't line up. Um, but the accounts of people that contributed to Simon Wells's coming down fast and Tex Watson's reactions to being under the influence of that drug, mm. horrific. Um, mm. the, the things that he was saying and the experience he had, and, and it was like um, four or five days of him like like wanting to, like asking to die um, and, and having horrific experiences. And then having a huff jar of methamphetamines that Manson apparently, and I see, I don't know again, cause I, I'm not, I'm not a historian of anything. Um, forbade people from, from taking methamphetamines. And I don't know if, if that's true. Um, but Tex Watson hid a huffing jar that he would before going out, um, to, murder people would would huff from this jar and and then kind of be in a completely different psychological state when driving to cielo drive than than he was laying around on the ranch it you know just like not even able to stand up mm. yeah i mean and it it's the if datura was well and and both watson and manson say datura was involved then you're dealing with a drug that gives you a three-day trip um and takes you out of reality so your whole sense of what you're doing it, it's like it, it, there's this old saw that that you can't get somebody to do under hypnosis something they wouldn't do normally and this it just repeated again and again and again and you go well okay this is a toy gun go and shoot somebody with it mm. so you don't have to cross that moral barrier and um as darren brown has demonstrated twice now you can make a manchurian candidate you can make some you know he had uh, one of them he had stephen fry on stage and he had somebody in the audience shoot him um and the guy who's shooting him had no idea why he'd done it so but that's a very quick form of programming and you know, i've spent far too much time studying terrorism over the years and a lot of the texts are not reliable. That's my conclusion, because the people didn't actually bother to spend any time with terrorists. <laughs> you know, why do that when you can 
get a grant yeah. to not have to because they're horrible people you don't want to meet them <laughs> but when you look at the work of a real Marari who is in Tel Aviv and I think affiliated with Yale he spent more than 20 years talking with failed suicide bombers and what's evident is you can program to do something you can program somebody to kill themselves and to kill others suicide bombers have been routinely trained to do this but when you get into the small print you find that the bombers themselves tend to be teenagers, they tend to be young. Um, Palestinians say that they won't recruit anybody un under the age of 17, which is nice. Um, but they'll be young and there'll be three days between recruitment and death. Because this is, you know, so maintaining somebody, the idea is family from the very beginning run by Jolly West who met, may have met, Manson walked the same corridors as O'Neill's is as far as O'Neill manages to get in terms of proof for two and a half years he was in some way according to O'Neill therefore running the family uh, which is a ridiculous assertion um, so these kind of short term getting somebody to do something horrific yes it can be done and it if you then have put them onto a drug, given them a drug where they don't realize what they're doing. Um, historically, we have the berserkers, people who were given drugs to then be sent into battle uh, because they didn't care what they did anymore. And the most usual drug for that effect, of course, is alcohol, <laughs> as it is also the most usual date rape drug by far. Um, so we do have uh, an elephant in the room there. But in this case, we have these convergent factors that say a lot of things went wrong. If we look to before the Hinman murder, um, you have uh, Crow, the, the very large 300 pound um, black drug dealer who Manson shoots and thinks he's killed. Yeah. And the next day, there's news that a Black Panther has been killed. And Manson knows what that means if he's because he left two witnesses. It means he's finished. And that would explain that's in the July. That would explain why things get ramped up and that Manson is now entering a paranoia where he's kind yeah. of in fear of his for his own life. And the the idea is that to because Bobby Beausoleil's been arrested, they will do copycat killings and, and off they'll go. But this does seem to have been a decision made within the group. I've I've read I've read versions of well that you know there's so many different different things out there, but in the Simon Wells biography, it does talk about how Tex Watson and I don't want to I don't want to say which which of the women it was because I, I can't remember specifically. <laughs> go to Manson and propose the idea. Yeah. Um, I think it might have been Sadie, but I don't know. Um, and that's been corroborated by a number of different people. Um, so it kind of, it, it, it's, it's, but then there are famous, well, infamous lines that Manson is known for when they're leaving and he he says something like uh, make it look convincing i mean it's not those words but yeah. so it's it's hard to pull everything apart well i think what you say is is vital that that the idea doesn't appear to have come from him 
um, he then goes along with it wholeheartedly and yeah. of course plants evidence after the tape murder he he goes to the house and plants a pair of spectacles there for some some reason to confuse people and they're found they're, they're not even they're found under the fridge or something and and police think that they belong to to one of the the people that were that was living there so yeah it's mm. so many things so many things go go wrong the 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 bicycle well not bicycle <laughs> the um the biker gang that Bobby Beausoleil became involved with before which led to the the, the Gary Hinman fiasco mm. was a whole element the illegal chop shop that they were running, stealing cars, breaking them down. The most, um, it's like Occam's razor. When you're looking at this conspiracy theory that Manson and the Manson family were part of the MK Ultra mind control experiment, which we know happened, but not in this context. Hmm. Occam's razor tells me that there were multiple law enforcement agencies working across the Cielo Drive incident uh there's another police division trying to locate where all of these cars are going and 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 there's another police division looking at Spahn's ranch because there's weird activity happening mm. and people are driving cars but don't have driving licenses and then there's everything happening in in Los Feliz at the Leno and Rosemary La Bianca property none of these people are communicating and it's only when by chance two of those people do that it all comes together. So to me, when I read it that way, that makes the most sense to me, you know, instead of chance interactions between two individuals like Jolly West and Charles Manson. Um, I, and I'm sure for some people that can sound convincing enough. That's why we have conspiracy theories around Jonestown being part of some CIA um memory mind manipulation program um sometimes i think people find conspiracy theories easier to understand than the horrific truth of things um and in this case if 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 law enforcement were communicating or working differently there's a chance that less people would have died and the you know breaking down cars was the 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 worst crime that that could have happened mm. without looking at the actual abuse that was taking place to the family members themselves yes absolutely and i think an important factor in this for all of us is why we believe things that um so you know with the eric hunley interview i sat there and you know You've seen the piece that I, I put onto that Tony Ortega put onto the underground bunker, because I wanted to give chapter and verse and explain why yeah. I'm concerned about O'Neill's book. My concern is based upon him saying he has no evidence, and he repeatedly says that he has no evidence. That all he can prove is that Charlie Manson and Jolly West walked the same corridors. They were both at one point or another at the free clinic in Haight-Ashbury. He can't even show that they ever met. And so I sit back from that and go, well, there's no evidence. I think that that of all of the things that I've found out in, you know, in my long and exasperating life of 
lead me to, to one core idea which William James put forward, the great psychologist. He talks about noesis, the feeling of knowing, the being sure of things. And there are feelings of knowing that are based upon belief and there are feelings of knowing that are based upon evidence. So when people in the comments after the Eric Hunley interview were, were saying, yeah, but we still believe O'Neill. It's sort of, what's to believe? Why is belief any part of this? Until such time as proven otherwise, you are innocent until proven guilty. And that approach to the world saying, you know, this is possible, this is probable, this is improbable. That's about what we've got in the world. And with the Manson family, it does look like a, a petty criminal who has all sorts of difficulties and problems, who finds out that he can command and dominate girls. Now, there's no particular history of him doing that. When he was a pimp, he was, he was rotten at it. It's only after studying yeah. Scientology that he finds that he's now got this way of getting these girls to, to follow him. It wasn't, wasn't something yeah. that came naturally to him. Gosh, that says so much because during periods of earlier incarceration, Manson would be under the kind of wing or care of underground criminals, notable gang leaders, mm. notable pimps who would entertain Manson with stories of how to do this and how to do that. And actually, even after spending time with hardened criminals that were doing that outside of prison, the most successful way of doing it was still not from the criminals, but from the Church of Scientology. Oh, gosh. I, I read something a few months ago about the, um, the actor Danny Trejo being in prison with Charles Manson and talking about how he was like a greasy scrawny little man who needed protection but he mm. could hypnotize people so he used to in the and this might go back to what you were just saying about walking up and down the, the cells he would um he would hypnotize people um so that they weren't in the cells and and so the leader of the the group would let him sleep at the foot of the bed. So there was like eight of them to a cell, and and he his protection would be sleeping like a like a dog at the end of of this uh, leader's bed. So yeah, and and it's interesting because I imagine that that was likely to be um, a Mexican Hispanic demographic of of people that he was. Uh, offered protection from in exchange for hypnotism sessions <laughs> mm. and curiously his racism extended to latinos it wasn't just blacks um of course he wouldn't have said anything to the girls because he wouldn't want to upset them in yeah, between no, raping them and <laughs> having yeah. them shag whoever. and delivering their babies and all sorts of other they can't go to hospital we're not letting any of that and we'll call the baby Pooh bear yeah I wonder, yeah. I wonder where Pooh Bear is now and, and what sort of life he's had. Manson. Well, there's a huge ongoing battle for the um, Manson estate, uh, which I just think is ridiculous because they said that there was no way he could generate money whilst he was in prison. But people were just sending him money, you know, because mm. the world of true crime is like a weird, odd place. And, and so the music that he made when he was a free man generates money now you can listen to it on spotify i don't know ethically if that's appropriate <laughs> yeah there's there's a 
various different people fighting for his estate. One of his grandchildren, although his son was like, I don't want anything to do with this. Mm. Or one of his children was just like, no, I don't even want people to know that I am in any way related to this person. I'm so. told that I'm told that all of Hitler's relatives in the US have changed their surnames for some reason too. I can't think why, no. Oh. It's a pretty distinct it's not like like Smith or Cook or something like you know, ATAC. I again that'd be one of those names that that's pretty I think it's pretty distinct. Um not comparing you to Hitler by the way. <laughs> Oh, oh, just to well, let you know. <laughs> let's just say you wouldn't be the first person. <laughs> um, no, and and I was very surprised to find that there are indeed other people who suffer under the name John Atac, not simply even spelled and in just abbreviation of Jonathan, which is what's on my birth okay. certificate. But but there's some poor guy who's a sound engineer who's from Oregon, oh. and he's called John Atac. Oh, you see, now you've met these people. This is what's coming I out. Thought you were I thought you were going to say, oh, so he's been called John Attack his whole life. But now I realise if you're John Attack and people think he's John Attack. Well, and he's not the only one. There's a chemist called John Attack as well. So every now and then, um... academia.edu tell me, what, what am I up to? I'm cited in 2,600 academic papers, they tell me. But I'm pretty sure, you know, some of it is me. But I'm pretty sure that the chemist is is in there and probably has. And but the reason I it, it's embarrassing because these poor guys have no doubt been harassed by Scientology at some point. You know? I'm sure that board was following me yesterday back from work. It's like this is so strange. Am I being stalked? <laughs> it's bad stuff. So it it leaves us with. We need to understand, we absolutely need to understand what happened with MKUltra, that that was a disgusting and despicable program. We need to understand why, which was because they really believed that the Chinese and the Russians had followed up on Pavlov and had found ways of controlling people. Of course, Ron Hubbard only made it worse by publishing the brainwashing washing manual. And there had been so much debate about the authenticity of, of this ridiculous diatribe. And some somebody came to me having written an article about it. I think it was might have been Steve Kent, you know, somebody absolutely reputable. And I'm sort of, Steve, I interviewed two people who were there when he dictated it. <laughs> no. Is that good enough to say he dictated it? You know, the fact that Barrier wasn't alive by the time it was meant to have come out. Um, and that the, the university it happened that doesn't exist. And and it's now, it's kind of like the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It's one of those, the, you know, the, the American hard right still passed this ludicrous thing around. But Hubbard was very interested in brainwashing. In fact, he said, we can brainwash faster than the Russians. I think it's 30 seconds to total amnesia. He's boasting about having brainwashing techniques. Um, the Kennedy administration, he writes to Kennedy and says, you know, would you like my conditioning techniques oh, you know, for your astronauts? Um, and apparently Kennedy didn't didn't want them. But he conceived his subject. I mean, in 1952, he says we have ways here of, of making slaves. And then he says, let's make sure none are made. You know, it's like, yeah, really. Right. But he sees so his techniques year, as brainwashing. That, that's the same year that Jolly West first spoke out publicly against Hubbard. So is that the correlation? Is that the is that no, the cause the, for 
these were lectures that only 38 people would have heard at the time. Right. They're, they're now um, sold to all Scientologists for a vast amount of money. Um, but they're crucial because in 1952, he lost the rights to Dianetics. He sold the rights to Dianetics and he had for a dollar and he had to come up with something else. And uh, he'd lost the book and, and anything. And there, weren't, there wasn't any revenue anyway, because in May 1950, this book's released. It sells 150,000 copies. To everybody's surprise, it's published by a medical publisher. You know, it's what? And by the October, the publisher, Art Sepos, has gone, this is fraudulent. He's lying. And he commissions a Dr. Joseph Winter, who'd worked with Hubbard throughout the writing of the book. They were seeing each other every day for months. And Winter, still medical doctor, still really believes in this Dianetic therapy. But he's going, this Hubbard, he's just, he's an awful charlatan. So Sepos stops publication of Dianetics and Modern Science of Mental Health and replaces it with a doctor's report on Dianetics. Um, Hubbard's lost his following. There's nothing going on and things just go from bad to worse. So that by December 1952, first book in May 1950, he's got an audience of 38 people. That's it. But oh, the good news is, having paid $500, quite a lot of money at the time, for six weeks, all they have to do is sit and listen to him. And at the end of it, they get a doctorate. Imagine. It's not a bad deal. It's you not can... not a bad deal at all. Where do, where do I sign up? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's, um, they, they actually bought a diploma mill, Sequoia University, which awarded a PhD to Hubbard without admitting that it was owned by Scientology. And I, I mean, oh, I, only, I only found that out after I'd written Blue Sky. And suddenly there are these documents about, you know, the Scientology oh. Management Corporation or something had bought Sequoia University, which was a diploma mill. And away you go. A lot of smoke and a lot of mirrors. And when we're investigating yeah. it, we need to be very careful about what we're certain of. You need to be saying, what is the evidence for this? You know, I got it with documents so that when I was first presented um, what purports to be a transcript from George Washington University with Aaron Hubbard's name on it, saying that he'd got an F grade in molecular and atomic physics, a failing grade, I had to treat that with a certain amount of scepticism. I stopped treating it with scepticism long afterwards. It's 2015 before I got hold of a lecture that Hubbard had given on the 24th of September 1950 called Introduction to Dianetics, where he says at George Washington University, I got an F grade in atomic and molecular physics. He would later claim to be a nuclear physicist. You know, so it, we have to be so careful sieving the evidence. I, I've yeah. often talked with people who had a different account. Um, today, I talked with Janice Gillum Grady for the first time, which was great fun. And um, I said to her, this guy told me that he was coding telexes for Hubbard and the coded telexes were going to the harassment division in the Guardian's office. And she said, no, 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 no. He coded all of the telexes so that nobody would get into them. And he gave his instructions privately with nobody listening to Mary Sue Hubbard. Whenever they were going to have a conversation, even the messengers had to leave the room. And she's confident enough that you know, Mary Sue Hubbard was not running anything 
Ron Hubbard was telling her what to do and she was doing it. And, I, and it immediately brought that kind of Don Corleone thought yeah. to mind, you know, that I'm just going to whisper in your ear and now you go and do it. When you get caught, which of course she did, yeah, then you'll go down and I won't. Yeah. And um, being there the greatest- There are no witnesses. Um, oh, but I still want to know what's in the rest of those red boxes because I bet it's some damning stuff. Well, we, you know, a lot of material came out, and including, of course, Operation Freakout, which Tony Ortega has written so eloquently about um, in the Unbreakable Miss Lovely, which is, you know, it, there have been so many books written about Scientology now. I think I can still say that the, that the only historical overview is let's sell these people a piece of blue sky, though Janet Reitman called her Inside Scientology the first modern objective history of Scientology. And then um, when you look to the reference notes, it's largely drawn from a piece of blue sky or barefaced messiah, which was also largely drawn from a piece of blue sky. So objective, it's objective because she's not an ex-Scientologist, but she's repeating right. often what I've said. <laughs> so it, even there, she gets facts wrong. I, I noted one erroneous fact per page so i don't recommend her book Gosh. tremendously very sloppy um but nonetheless that I, I did read the bad cadet though i thought that was a fantastic memoir i and i'm so excited to speak um and talk about the juxtaposition between you know being a carefree kid and also working in a kitchen as a cook at the age of eight um i'm, I'm yeah, Catherine Spolino's got a great a great voice as a as a as a writer. So thank you for connecting us to mm. one another. <laughs> I, I was very impressed with her. She contacted me and and I and sent me a copy of the book. And I thought, well, I'll skim this and I'll do a show with her to promote it because I want to help people be heard. And um, to my amazement, I read the book. You know, it was so intriguing, and she is such a a charming and delightful person because there's no no venom in it there's no bitterness to an outsider looking at the terrible childhood she had in the 90s in, in Scientology it, it's jaw-dropping you know how can people but to her it was the life she lived and and she came away but uh, what particularly got me with, with with Catherine was when I spoke to her I said so who have you approached and she said well I came to you and, and to Chris Shelton because you don't seem intimidating. And um, I said, oh, have you been to Mike Rindo? She said, oh, no, no Mike's a celebrity sort of thing. It's like, and it, it was, she's a, you know, she's a housewife with a couple of kids and, you know, um, very smart, uh, very likable. And I think very honest, you know, that, that the book tells you and I, I mean, I think it'd be particularly useful for anyone who yeah. had a childhood within a, um, an authoritarian cult, because seeing the parallels there, seeing yeah, yeah. How especially you're... the the family separation is so poignant, um, and mm. uh, the lack of communication between her and her parents and her parents to each other as well. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 a it's a really really well written book, and I. I'm hoping to draw that point. It's also for me coming from the position of of not growing up or existing in one of these experiences. It's a really educational piece in that sense as well. It it, it gives insight 
where you know it's not just i grew up in the sea org you know what is the sea org what are all of the different acronyms and parts of the sea org what does that mean for you know what does that mean for children before they go to the sea org what happens before all of the stuff that happens before and then once you're there all the stuff that happens so that that's what it's 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 really really good for as well is is bridging that gap between mm. people that you know oh I've, I've heard about the sea org but have you heard from this perspective because i imagine it's quite unique um <laughs> i yeah uh, i i've interviewed a person that had their guardianship signed over to scientology into the sea org um her name was cat she was she was very young but i've never read about it and and there's a big difference between having a two-hour conversation with a person and reading about uh, a person's life in detail. So, um, yeah, both both are good. Read the book and and mm. listen to the podcast. <laughs> yeah, and and um, Janice Gillam Grady's um, book Commodore's Messenger um, is you know there you've got the creation of the cadet org because she's wow. the first cadet back in 1968 at the age wow. of I think she's 12 by then she's on the ship at 11 and she the Commodore's messenger organization begins with Janice and she I, I she tries to I, th I think she seeks to be fair and she no longer believes in Scientology um, even she spent 11 years serving Hubbard and was with him most days during that time but but she seeks to be giving an accurate picture to the best of her ability. I mean, often in Scientology, there are things happening in the next room that you don't know about. So, for example, in her book, she talks about John McMaster's disaffection from Scientology. McMaster was announced as the world's first real clear. Hubbard had announced lots of pretend ones in the 15 years before that in 1965. And um, she talks about his disaffection. I interviewed John at great length back in 1984 and the reason he left Scientology is very straightforward Hubbard was throwing people overboard it was still happening a couple of years on and um you know back in Corfu when they were there they were actually it's 25 to 40 feet I'm told that the drop and the high board in um the swimming baths here is about 14 or 15 feet so they were throwing people from higher than the high diving board many of whom couldn't swim They'd have their ankles tied together so they could be pulled back onto the boat. They might be blindfolded. And talking with Karen de la Carrier last year, she said, yeah, and in Corfu, of course, all the ships let out their, their human waste oh, gosh. into the harbour. So you're being thrown into that. And this is the oh. great, you know, the future Buddha who will save all of mankind, Maitreya. But... Um, John McMaster was overboarded and he broke his collarbone um, on impact and he was left screaming in the water for two hours. So Janice, even though she was thereabouts, didn't know that. So often it's, it's like mm -hmm. a, a tesserae of a mosaic. You fit, fling yeah. a picture out and understanding things, which, which again, brings us back to Manson, that it's important to, to get all of the evidence before drawing the conclusions. And that Charles Manson was trained in a system of, of mind control, a system that says it's a system of mind control. There's no contention about that. Um, 
Scientology is about learning to intend other people to do things, which if we take the language apart is it's learning how to perform magic. It's learning how to do supernatural things to people. Um, and it, you know, thankfully doesn't work. If it did work, we wouldn't be having this conversation now, would we? If Scientology had any supernatural powers, 40 years later, John Atak wouldn't still be making peevish comments about Ron Hubbard. You know, oh, you know just... I've also had the thought, though, after after he sold the rights to Dianetics, like, and, and only had 38 people listening to it, imagine if it just fizzled out. We just also wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> and, and uh, but a lot of people would have been saved from so much harm, um, if only. It's true, but but as we go back in history, there are so many of these figures, Mary Baker Eddy, um, Madame Blavatsky. Um, yeah, whose legacies, well, I don't know if it's if it's a legacy as such, but whose, whose influences still exist very much um, in the world today. Well, there, there are no Nazis without Blavatsky. Her, her Atlantis story is, is foundational to Nazi belief. Um, and, you know, the pan-Germanism Pan in Austria of the early 19th century comes straight out of it. Even though the Psychical Research Society, uh, her, their first investigation was into her and they declared her a fraud. So even people that really wanted to believe found out what she yeah. was up to. Um, but the influence lingers. People still talk about Atlantis as if it wasn't a fairy story that first appears yeah. in Plato. And... Yeah. Theosophy has influences in, in almost every online New Age spiritual community, um, everything to do with, you know, mindfulness, going back to, you know, um, self-coaching includes so many elements of theosophy. And Mary Baker Eddy's Christian Science is is still like well it kind of goes up and down in numbers but it's there are still people who are dying from from medical neglect because they they follow the teachings to the letter um it's yeah so even if ron hubbard you know even if those 38 dwindled to zero there's nothing to say that it would have at some point resurged into the you know oh it's so weird to think of him having no money and having no followers <laughs> it's just like you think about the worth of the church now just in real estate um is is wild well and also in terms of branding you just called it the church the church yeah which the of church. course Aaron hubbard was very concerned that we should look to the etymology of words and a church is a gathering of christians hmm so when we say Church of Scientology, and when you track that one back, it's because in 19, December 1953 in Camden, New Jersey, Ron Hubbard registered three churches. That's where it begins. He would repeatedly say it was other people. It was Burton Farber in February 1954 who first. So that was all, there was always a screen. But the registrations exist. When I complained about Janet Reitman earlier, I do mention these registrations in my book, but she opts for the Ron Hubbard story that it was somebody else that did it. The point is you have the Church of Human Engineering and the Church of American Science. And the Church of American Science, we're actually told its purpose accidentally when somebody was making the Scientology dictionaries, these two 600 page 
tomes of Hubbard's misunderstood words. Um, we find Church of American Science. Somebody had found it in a tape and they decided to put it in the book. And it says that the purpose is to recruit Christians and move them on to something better like Scientology. So the whole notion of it being a church has now crossed over so that we have this per word, this nice word that we associate with them, but they are not in any sense of the word a church. So in fact, Janet Reitman and I fell out of this. She's coming back into this conversation. She contacted me and I sort of, when she was researching and I said, look, I'll talk to you on background. Don't mention me to anybody. I will give you access to my significant um, document archive. Um, but I noticed you use the word church. And she came back and said, many people believe it's a religion. And I'm like, no, that's not my point at all. It's a cult <laughs> um, it, or whatever, but it's not. The one thing it's not is a church. It's not a synagogue. It's not a temple and it's not a church. Uh, that was a deliberate manipulation to, to get people. It's like the exontologists will refer to Hubbard as Ron, LRH, L. Ron Hubbard. They will fit the pattern. They will keep on with that. It's a small thing. I call him Ron Hubbard. You know, why would I call him L. Ron Hubbard? You know, it's, it continues That's previous. That's so interesting. That is yeah. so interesting. I mean, I guess I say Church of Scientology because often in this work or when I'm speaking to people about Scientology and people are like, oh, well, I mean, you know, what is Scientology? Well, first of all, it's tax exempt because it's considered uh, a religion um, and it's, you know, the Church of Scientology. So I think I just fall into the habit of saying the Church of Scientology for you know, I don't know, irony? <laughs> Ex-members ex call it the church. It, it, it's quite normal to call it the church. Almost everybody, Tony Ortega will call it the church. Um, the word cult has become rather loaded, but calling it Scientology or, or the organization, I, if I'm in a mischievous mood, I call it the B-Org uh, because that's the Borg and that takes us <laughs> to the one mind in Star Trek, you know. Um, <laughs> But, but don't explain that to anyone. And I talk about members as, as being dev OTs and people don't necessarily get where, where that one comes from because that of course is Hubbard's developed unnecessary traffic, dev T, but with an O put into it. So they're dev OTs um, and they do waste your time. That's for sure. So the definition fits, but it it's you know loaded language that we fall into describing something in its own terms and with Scientology, I mean, it does bother me that, that people think that being a religion is a good thing. So the thuggies who used to use Datura like Manson and strangle about four or 5,000 people a year, that was a religion, they worshiped Kali. The Aztecs, when they ripped hearts out of people, that was a religion. Yeah. The, yeah. When the witch yeah. burning was going on and, and the Inquisition, these are religions. The term religion is just a term about a group of people getting together and having beliefs that bind them together, ligare. To oh, you're going to say, and sacrificing people, because that also well, you know, a lot of... <laughs> that, I mean, and there we get into all of the, the trouble with the process, and that uh, Maury Terry's peculiar book and assertions about the network of satanic groups, and, and we yeah. find ourselves plunged into this thing. Um, still, there we are. I think we have aired some of the points 
and um, we'll come back. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot, isn't there? I mean, my understanding of Jolly West is that there were hundreds of MK Ultra groups, or 149 projects. Right. Um. And and Jolly West was overseeing one project. Possibly. Um, so I don't I don't but, know. But let's look at the again. nature of those those projects that that because of course that immediately makes somebody sound dreadful anybody that was hired by mk ultra as um o'neill shows would not be told hey this is the cia's mind control program they would be offered money um he traces it to chemo frill he has he found letters from sherman grifford at chemo frill and sherman grifford is sydney gottlieb who's the head of MKUltra. But there's no evidence that Jolly knew he was getting letters from anybody other than Sherman Grifford, whoever that is. Um, and that Chemofrill was offering money. And of course, those 149 projects, yes, some of them were like, you know, spraying cadmium on the streets and seeing who got, got sick or um, erasing people's memories uh, under the, the head of the World Federation of Mental Health, Ewan Cameron in his Canadian asylum was wiping people's memories with electroconvulsive therapy and isolation tanking. Um, terrible, terrible things. You wouldn't be told this. What you'd be told is, Jolly, we're really interested in the effects of LSD and we found some research money for you. You wouldn't know you were part of a, you know, scurrilous, despicable attempt to control and destroy people. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, to call him the architect of that is a bit, it's a bit. Well, he I mean, wrote it's not the bit, blueprint. He wrote the blueprint, <laughs> O'Neill says. Yeah. And it, and it, you know, in talking with people, just simply looking at the way a psychopath is, psychopaths don't do things to help people. They, they'll do things so that it looks like they're helping people. It's like when, when Hubbard said, you know, that, that, um, he, he wanted Scientology to look like a charitable organization. Um, and thankfully, they don't have tax exemption in this country, though they are recognized as a religion by the Supreme Court, but they're not recognized as a charity, quite rightly. Um, so they pay all of the money off, offshore and never make a profit here. So they don't pay any taxes. They never have paid any taxes here, I don't think. But to, you know, we, we have to get into the detail. We have to see what happened and and to whom did it happen jolly did a you know some somebody came onto the comments at, at eric's site and said yeah but what good did he do and he kind of again well firstly when somebody goes to court it's not a matter of well you've got to teach us what you know you've got to tell us what good you've done or we'll send you to prison you're meant to actually charge them with a crime and find them guilty using evidence you know, witnesses documents that kind of thing but i pointed out that that he received 36, I think it's 36 honors and awards from universities and associations. A lot of it for his work on alcohol rehabilitation, helping people who'd had problems with drugs um, and understanding those things better. He wrote 182 chapters and papers that were published and he wrote or co-wrote eight books and monographs. I found him unbelievably helpful. He did everything he could. Um, I was offered a PhD by Aarhus University in Denmark, and um, he wrote a, a letter of support. 
um, straight away. And that's why I know how many awards and papers he's got. So I've got this, in fact, I've got it right here. I can wave it at the camera. Um, <laughs> here's my proof. <laughs> yeah, here's, here's my proof, you know, scan that. This is wow. the list of Jolly West's achievements in life. Oh my goodness. That is like the, that is like, like the references you'd find in the back of a book. <laughs> yes, it is, it is exactly that. Wow. And, you know, he, he was fulsome in his praise, uh, you know, which, uh, you know, I first became acquainted with Mr. Atak after reading his excellent book, like the word, used word excellent, a piece of blue sky, and seeking him out. I was greatly impressed with the thoroughness of his research, the quality of his writing, and the timeliness of his exposition. Um, the book is now the definitive text on Elrond Hubbard and the Church of Scientology. So, yeah, you know, I do have reason to, to like the man. Yeah, yeah no doubt you're, you're not biased at all. <laughs> but I, you know, I would defend, I hope, I would defend anybody who I felt was wronged. And, and I hope that the fact that I've stood up to Scientology for 40 years, despite everything, gives me a, a certain standing in the community to say, you know, I, I will fight for, for what I believe to be right. And in this case, perversely, to some extent, I'm fighting for Charlie Manson's rights. I'm, I'm fighting for the right to him to be viewed as he was. And he was a truly awful human being. But I don't feel think... scapegoaty to say, oh, you know, it was all just part of the CIA, these uh, MK Ultra experiments. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I watched Quentin Tarantino's uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood mm. and the ending not being what I, you know, and I didn't watch it for years because I know in, in in too much detail what took place mm. at Cielo Drive. And I, I was just like, I don't want to watch a film. Oh, do you want I to see that? Yeah. Tarant like, Tarantino's notorious for having graphic, gory, mm. you know, overly dramatic, uh, fight scenes and things and, I and sucking like, women's toes in four films apparently so, there was yeah there's so much toe action <laughs> in in once upon a time in hollywood but i watched it and the ending playing out the way that it did you know i didn't want to see the accurate ending but i didn't want to see a fictionalized version either because it kind of feels like but that's not what happened it mm. wasn't it wasn't a heroic fight scene where, you know, the innocent people chilling in their houses fought back and won, like, and it was next door to the pregnant woman and her, you know, her three friends and Stephen Parent that most people forget to talk mm. about because, you know, he wasn't a, a celebrity or somebody that was going to inherit millions of dollars. But um, it, I, I almost felt like there memories were cheated by the end of that film because it was just so i don't it know is, so I, it is. what i wanted from the ending but it wasn't either of the things <laughs> mm. i mean and there's so much else that, that can be said about the connections with hollywood and celebrity because of terry melcher um uh, doris day's son who who had produced uh, mr tambourine man for the birds and made them super wealthy by by basically telling four of them they couldn't play their instruments and bringing in a band to do it. We won't talk about that. But um, Melcher's girlfriend was Candice Bergen. So when um, 
one of the girls, I think it was Ruth Ann Moorhead, was offered to, to Melcher to take home. It was Candice Bergen who said, oh, no, you don't. So she knew Manson. Yeah. And Dennis Wilson, of course, of, of the Beach Boys, associated closely with him. That there, So once upon a time in Hollywood, this making a fiction of it, as you say, that does seem disrespectful to Sharon Tate and the others who, who died. Uh, on the other hand, it's Hollywood, you know. And, yeah, and that's, that's the way true. They treat that's things, true. But... I don't know. There was just like this idyllic, like yeah. Margot, pregnant Margot Robbie waddles out as Sharon Tate. And she's like, oh, are you okay? Mm. Oh, some bad guys came over. Oh, why don't you come over here and have a drink with us? And it's just like, mm. I don't know. I just kind of felt like, oh, I don't know how I felt, <laughs> obviously. But maybe he was meaning it ironically in the same way that you, when you use the word church, mean it ironically. And, and But um, it, yeah, once upon a time. Um, it, it's a yeah. it, it's a well-made film um, and I, I must say when I got to the end of it I was relieved yeah yes yeah. so I think there is an element of that isn't there that's why I put it off for so long because I didn't you know nobody wants to to, to see that no. um, but I don't know she was just and and I like who doesn't you know wish so many different things like you know at least that she had her baby and that the baby was okay and the baby was safe and there's so many different things and she's just standing there at the end of the film and she's fine and i was thinking but she's not fine <laughs> um, oh. yeah it's it's conflicting but i think to sit down and look at everything and the various different books that exist and the, the different theories mm. i just always go back to he was a criminal and he was using everything that he'd picked up from all these different people and books and all these different ways of manipulating and influencing people and, you know, trying to move everyone out to Death Valley where he could be even further, like, from anything, any anything living at all. Um, you know, trying to build dune buggies out of stolen car pieces and that that... That sounds crazy, but it still makes the most sense. Yeah, to me. To, yeah, to, to, a series of dreadful events took place, and people will forever be arguing who killed JFK. I think it was yeah. Oliver Stone. Um, people will, you know, all of the great mysteries. You know, what happened to the Marie Celeste, and what's going on in the Bermuda Triangle? You know, people. Yeah, we are, yeah. We are, drawn to these mysterious things some somebody in the comments said look you know it's all in the past you know why are you bothering with this and it's like do you use your memory for anything because it's all in the past <laughs> what's in there yeah you know? no i don't i think when you go to um visit certain um parts of um, poland <laughs> Yeah, and there are signs that say, you know, the reason that this museum is open is because if we, it's the famous quote, and I'm so San, uneloquent. San, so, Santiana, uh, <laughs> those who do not remember history are doomed to repeat it. It was above Jim Jones' throne at Jonestown. No way, was it? Yep. And on oh the uh, on the Jim Jones and the CIA, I, I talked with um, John Andrew Collins last week, who's looked into the William Branham tabernacle with in great depth. And I did not know 
that before I didn't know that Jones had, had been one of Branham's acolytes and they split when Jones started bringing black people into his church because yep. Branham was also deeply involved with the Ku Klux Klan and had a compound in Chile where they dug tunnels into Argentina so that Nazi war criminals could escape. And you no. go, this, this is a religion, isn't it? It's a religion, you know? Yeah, and how many branches have come from, you know, the, the Branham movement? How many? <laughs> There's so many but different... The, the, whole Pentecost, the whole Pentecostalist movement is, you know, the origins of it. I think every pastor who was involved in creating Pentecostalism from Dowie onwards, they're all crooks. And so, you know, I'm a big fan of the Righteous Gemstones. I don't know if you've seen it yet, but um, it's run to the third season now and it shows the mega church movement for what it is. Oh, gosh. I mean, that, that kind of brings us full circle, doesn't it? If we're going to be talking about people that claim to be born again messiahs um, or reincarnations of Jesus Christ himself. Or representatives of God on earth. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. Yep. And they and only they could interpret things because they are the only ones that can communicate with this divine being, which is just, you know, you know, just so convenient for them. <laughs> yeah, and 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 twas ever thus that century on century you have people who are writing down their realizations and we're believing them. And I'm with Jesus on this, that that when Thomas comes along and says, I don't I don't recognize you. Jesus says, put your fingers in the holes. I want to be allowed to do that, you know, to check the evidence. And uh, that seems reasonable to me. If Jesus said it was okay, I'd like to see yeah. the evidence. So until I see somebody raised from the dead, I'm going to be a little bit skeptical about that. Yeah, yeah. Same, same with all things like ghosts and <laughs> conspiracy theories um and, and, and all sorts of things yeah i, <laughs> I, I was remembered that quote because i would have butchered it horrifically <laughs> well, well I, I quickly memorized it before we went on you know <laughs> i i was fascinated when richard dawkins said that um he wouldn't like to walk through a graveyard at night <laughs> so so you don't actually believe any of the things you say <laughs> no well, and there was a well, survey of atheists you know 20 years ago or something. And uh, they found that 80% of atheists don't, they don't believe in God, but they do believe in the supernatural. So, me, I just believe in Santa Claus and that's the lot, you know. Yeah. And, and, I'll, and I won't hear anyone say anything about it. <laughs> no. Good old Nick. Good old Nick. Anyway, this has been a, a pleasure and a treat. And uh, we'll do it again in a couple of months' time. Yes, um, thank God, you. God thank willing. you so much for the conversation, thank for the facts, for laying it all out there and and clearing up things that are oftentimes uh, murky and mm. and not clear. Uh, I appreciate that. And I appreciate your time as well and for inviting me back on the channel. Well, always a pleasure. And um, we will uh, we will talk again soon. So thank yes. thank you very much, Casey. Take care. Thank you, John. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. 
Thanks so much. And away you go.